We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Yes, it is, and welcome back. Been looking forward to this all day. I get to see every Tuesday afternoon in our third hour my dear friends Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman. Lewis Holman is the managing director at Insight Analytics, Insight Analytics LLC. And Hugh Holman is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town, an educator and businessman, civic leader. And uh, we cover uh, – well, we started doing this uh, We started doing this in 2020, somewhere around April – been about uh, two years, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're closing in on a, on a two-year anniversary here, and we started doing it on COVID because I remember you were out of town, Hugh. Just quick memory refresher. You were out of town. Uh, you had come back into town. We hadn't talked for a little while, I think, because you were out of town. The COVID story was breaking, and everyone was kind of trying to figure out how to handle it and how to deal with it. I was fairly skeptical early on, and I noticed in my peer group a lot of people were a lot more um, nervous about it than I was. And uh, it was hard finding people who were willing to say, "Mm, maybe this isn't worth turning the entire world upside down over and our lives inside out. And you were on the phone, and, I, and, and we were just talking about other business, and then you said, plus we're now having to deal with this black swan event, which isn't a black swan event. And I said, whoa, what do you mean black swan event that isn't? And we realized we were on the same page there, and we decided to start speaking common sense once a week when it came to COVID, something that was at great discount, still is, I think. Um, you, you forget the editorial I wrote that actually ran in the Republic yep. when I was not uh, forbidden to run editorials in the Republic or appear on NPR. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's and, right. And uh, it was questioning sort of how COVID was being handled and the right. need for testing. And then Lewis called into your show. Yeah. And, and, that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> anyway, and I so said, we've we got to get him in studio. We got the band, we got the band together. Here's, so here's the, the th- only point I want to make. The only point I want to make. If you go back and look at what some of us were saying back in those early days. That got us banned from various yeah, news sources. Yeah. Huh? And you remove the number part, uh, projections, because you know the projections were based off wildly divergent ranges. I mean, three billion dead in America. So I, everyone was wrong on numbers. So I'm not going to take blame on that. But you look at some of what people like you and me and Lewis were writing and saying back then. Heather McDonald, a few others. We were more right than Fauci. Oh, well, our our track that. record was much more. Uh, Accurate than Fauci in the entirety of the There's CDC. There's a six-page six letter that I sent to the governor and the legislative leaders about what the right path should be, and I'll stand by that letter to this day. And that was written two years ago. You betcha. So anyway. With numbers and assessment and analysis and how to approach the issues. So here we are, ladies yep. and gentlemen, trying to offer ourselves as not based on just because we're beautiful people and have lovely voices, uh, but because we have demonstrated a record that proves yet again that hard work and analysis and thinking and thoughtfulness can get you better results than not. And people who just run to the spotlight uh, and or to the source of power aren't necessarily those who should be trusted. And that's where I think we pick up now. Well, I I also would would think that 
I try to carry out this work in a spirit of uh, professional amateurism, right? The, this whole notion throughout the pandemic. It's amateurish professionalism. You call it whichever you want. It could go either way. But this notion of in, in the pandemic of unthinkingly trusting experts who have a single credential in one subfield related to a multidimensional problem has gotten us in a lot of trouble and has ended up wasting trillions of dollars in, in, in well, what will be future tax burden for the, for the American public. Well, in fact, it was specifically that a radio station on the NPR angle here said after I was asked to comment and I gave them numbers and data about how it should be analyzed, their uh, their producer said I should not be allowed on the show ever again because that's the area for only the the physicians and those experts to comment on. And I explained later. I'm sorry. This is a data problem. This is an analysis problem. It doesn't require a physician. It requires somebody with the expertise to understand how data works and how numbers can be manipulated and trying to bring, as Lewis does, uh, a clarity to that approach instead of a manipulation, as we have seen the CDC and other agencies actually engage in, in order to carry out a narrative that was preferred by a particular class of, quote, experts. So let's talk about that. Here we have the city of Philadelphia deciding we have to have mask mandates because they're looking at numbers, notwithstanding the fact that, yes, it is possible, and Lewis has done more work on this than I have, uh, that the new variant uh, that is uh, becoming the, the the dominant variant in the United States, certainly has in Great Britain and other B- places. Omicron B2. B2, that it is, it is uh, more easily spread. And yet the data so far is that it's not increasing hospitalization or any other numbers. And in fact, even the former Baltimore uh, health uh, leader uh, came out against the Philadelphia uh, mask mandate on the grounds that it is now ringing the alarm bell falsely mm-hmm. and going to exacerbate the problem when we really do need to have people respond. Well, you know, then this is exactly in line with what we've been saying, right? The, the thing that we would expect from a virus just using pure evolutionary game theory is a trend towards greater trans- transmissibility and lower lethality. And this is exactly what we have been seeing now for the last two years. Variant after variant after variant has borne this out. Well, and the reason for that, if folks have forgotten, is that if you are a variant that kills your host, you don't spread because your host is dead and doesn't do the things you need to do to survive. And so the survival of the fittest doesn't mean the strongest, the most lethal. It means the best fit to the environment to spread, to propagate. And and that's what diseases do, like every other biological activity. Uh, And the goal is to spread your genes as far and wide as you possibly can, even if you can't think about that. That is, a virus doesn't think that way. It just behaves that way because that is the progression of biology. And so now here we have Philadelphia shutting down. And I I liken the move in Philadelphia to taking a page out of Xi Jinping's uh, manual and talking about, let's shut everybody down. We don't want this to spread. This is back to two years ago, the folks who kept saying, oh, we have to stop the spread. And the answer is, That's not possible. Even if you could stop the spread in the United States, you can't stop it worldwide and it's going to infect you. And guess what China now has? Massive, massive lockdowns. Not only the city of Shanghai, the second largest city in China, but now Guangzhou and other regions are also starting to be affected. They have taken offline the Yangtze River Delta and the Pearl River Delta, which are effectively its largest export bases and an enormous amount of their economy. They've been offline now for about three weeks, and yet China is still 
printing this fantasy that their economy is growing at 5%. If you shut down your two largest trading hubs for 6% of the year, how is it possible that you get a 5% year-over-year GDP growth? You don't, unless you are cooking the books. And talking about cooking the books, uh, we'll start now on this. We've got our own Federal Reserve cooking the books in ways that should make them embarrassed. Uh, Lewis keeps digging this out more thoroughly than anybody. And it is how the inflation rates that we're seeing reported by our Federal Reserve and by the U.S. government are being manipulated in a way to uh, protect the federal government from the losses that otherwise it would incur, as well as hide the fact that the U.S. uh, residents are paying an enormous tax in the loss of the value of what they own and what they earn as inflation is eating away at it. Yeah, we started on this a little bit last week when something when when it didn't when it when it looked a little bit curious. Go ahead, Lewis. What so, were you thinking? Let me let me before we get into the the machinations and the cover up, let me just start with the Federal Reserve's own numbers. The okay. PPI was just recently PPI released. PPI is the producer price index. That's the index for inputs into making other things right. that consumers then acquire. Right. So this is a leading indicator for the consumer price index. So in some level, we'll, we'll prelude where we're going. But according to the Federal Reserve, the PPI is up 11.2% annualized, which is the highest increase on record. Of that, vegetables were up 42.4% from February to March, not annualized. Annualized, they were up 81.5%. Grains were up 16.1% month over month from February to March, 40.1% annualized. Wheat, driven also by the Ukraine conflict, was up 24% month over month, 70% annualized. And this is only going to get worse. It is staggering the level of commodity price increases that the consumer is forced to bear partially because the Fed, again, has radically expanded the money supply. This is going to be a tax that keeps on giving in perpetuity. Let me hold you right there, both of you. We'll pick up on that on the other side of this break. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman. The other he is Lewis Hallman. We're at 602-508-0960, and we'll be right back. You like this, don't you, Hugh Holman? It reminds you of the uh, Channel 12 News theme growing up. That was the song, Children of Sanchez, yes, Chuck Mangione. That's right. Kent Dana, Linda Alvarez, and wow. Dewey Hopper, I want to say. The weatherman. Am I close? Dewey Hopper. That our, was that our news, local news growing up? Lewis Holman, um, you were talking uh, about the uh, inflation situation, and you were making a, a, some great points. Keep going, sir. All right. So I think where we were before the break was the producer price index, the index of goods on uh, goods on the production side cost is currently at 11.2%, again, the highest level on record. Now, this is a leading indicator for the consumer price index, which is the basket of goods that the Fed assesses that U.S. households use typically, and that's sort of the prime measure of inflation in this country. That's now, the number that you keep hearing reported, which currently right. the Fed says is? 8.5%, they say. So according to the Fed's own numbers, there may still be some significant way to go. However, the Fed's numbers have a significant number of problems with them. They, they cook the books. Now, we've talked before on the show that 
virtually every uh, uh, large-scale government entitlement and, and outlay is tied to the consumer price index. So if you can reduce the total of the consumer price index, even by a couple tenths of a percent over a decade, you are saving the, the federal government tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in outlays, depending on the magnitude of the correction you're able to make. So, so the incentive is, of course, as Congress doles out more and more money as entitlements to people who they like better than the people who are earning the money, uh, they want to not have that inflation of that number get out of hand so they can keep doling it out and looking good and not yet uh, selling all our futures down the down. There the also is a political reason to do this as well. Inflation is a tax on wealth right. in a very real way. If inflation is 5% per year, that means the value of all of my money and assets is worth 5% less next year, all else equal. Can I pause you with a question on that very Please point? Do. It, when you say it's a tax on wealth, it's a tax on income, it it, it, it it affects the wealthy as well as the poor. All wealth. Right. All, poor all, people all have income. wealth, all too. All income is what we mean. So their, yeah. their yeah. incomes and their household right. okay. goods also fall okay. in value. Right. And, and as they, they typically have a higher proportion of outlays of things in the consumer price index, things like food and gasoline as a proportion of their incomes, it's actually an extremely regressive form of taxation. But uh, that aside, let's talk about how the Fed is cooking the books. So let's look at housing. Now, in this 8.5% cooked CPI number, the Federal Reserve claims that there has been a 4.5% increase in rent year over year. Now, in Phoenix, that number is above 20%. In fact, if you look at a list of the 100 largest metro areas in the country, you'd be hard-pressed to find more than a handful in which the number is lower than 5%. CNN itself actually a couple weeks ago estimated that the true annual inflation in rent is about 17.1%. So how does the Fed get such a massive discrepancy? How are they able to claim this? Well, they use an exponential smoothing model to integrate many years' worth of data into the current adjustment. So they will say it's 4.5%, but that's actually averaging the rates for the last several years using a very complex mathematical formula in order to compress the number and get you a significantly smaller result. And worse, well, they also use this other mechanism. It's called a hedonic adjustment. And that happens when the Federal Reserve tinkers with the composition of the CPI. Also, the, I think the Bureau the of Labor The stuff Statistics. that's in your basket of goods. Right. So let's take the example of apartments, right? The things that we're renting, you know, that we all need to live in. In 1980, the apartment that was in the consumer price index was assumed to be a thousand square foot apartment. Now, currently, the apartment in the consumer price index is a 700 square foot apartment. So we've lost... 30% of the apartment square footage because of in the Fed's infinite reasoning, uh, you know, many of our electronics have been compressed down into iPhones. So we need fewer. We need less, less space. space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Less space in order to accommodate all of that. Uh, another My one stereo might be, system is so much smaller. I need 300 square foot square feet fewer than I needed before. Right. So another another uh, way you might Not look a at this dog. One right. fewer cats. <laughs> Another way you might think about this is entertainment budget, right? Where previously you might think of, I don't know, say five concert tickets, right, right being the price of the CPI. Well, if in the pandemic no one's going to concerts, the, the Fed might hedonically adjust it to, say, your Netflix subscription. And, and 
a Netflix subscription is a whole heck of a lot cheaper than five concert tickets. And so they could claim very reasonably, according to their twisted logic, that there is actually a massive deflationary pressure on entertainment costs, even though you're not buying nearly the same thing, nor are you getting near the same quality of entertainment. So just as an example, on the on the leased space, on your apartment and every other thing that goes into this housing mix, over 30 or 40 years, they have reduced the size of the apartment, which also, of course, most apartments are based on a square footage pricing model. Yeah. And so if you lose 30% of it, you would expect 30% of the price to have disappeared as prices are going up. So they've reduced the likely pressure on housing by eliminating a big chunk of the housing. you per square footage, exactly. theoretically. Right. Okay. The, the, the fancy... Uh, economics term for this process is hedonic adjustments. Okay. Yeah, it, it's sort of the the trick to reweight the basket of goods in the consumer price index. So the the next piece I, I think that I want to talk about in, with regards to inflation was actually a point that you raised very, very effectively, Dad. And it's hey, that... We're, we're, Bill, make sure you mark that. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> so it's the notion that the consumer price index and the producer price in, index, or the, the indices, are baskets of goods. And we think about inflation typically in the prices of commodities and in, in the physical goods that we buy. However, you know, with the printing of $6 trillion over the last couple of years, about 40% of the money supply being printed in the last two years, we didn't see immediate spikes in, asset and, uh, sorry, in, in commodity and good prices. What we saw instead was a rise in asset prices. So you heard real here estate. on this show first a year and a half ago that you saw a huge run-up in real estate pricing, stock market pricing, other kinds of asset acquisitions, which are never included in these indices. So how They're is it that part of it, the inflation calculation? So how is it that the median home value in Phoenix has risen 31.9% year over year? Well, that would be how the massive, massive money printing that is then not counted as part of inflation. So how does that all shake out? We now have a huge overpricing in assets, in real estate, in market securities and other things, which explains part of how there is a mismatch, a disconnect between equity pricing and the growth of the economy. Let me ask a stupid question as we go to break, and you can dispatch it or answer it at length when we come back. You're right. It's stupid. If it is stupid, which is, is all of this inflation of inflation or distortion of inflation uh, numerology and assessments and calculations, is it leading us down – is it building a bubble that's going to explode negatively on us? Is it building a bubble that we are going to be shocked by? That is is not a stupid question and that is exactly the issue we've been puzzling over is how $6 trillion has inflated asset pricing and how is that going to work out on the other side of the bubble? Will you talk about it on the other Absolutely. side of the break? Okay, great. I'm Seth Leibson. They're the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. A listener whose uh, name would be familiar if I said it, but he didn't give me permission to say it, requested that I play something just right now real quick, if you'll allow me to take you down uh, a little trip of memory lane here. Ms. Montgomery, a question on economics. Yes, uh, Mr. Brett. 
You remember this from Saturday Night Live? You said that the Humphrey Hawkins bill will cost a possible $60 billion. But isn't it true that the jobs provided by the bill will create up to $150 billion in increased production? Using Walter Heller's figure that for every 1% unemployed, there is a resulting $37 billion loss in GNP. Now, at the present rate of taxation of, on GNP of 39%, doesn't this come to about the same $60 billion in increased revenue? It was my understanding that there would be no math. <laughs> In Chevy, fact, the Chevy power, Chase is Gerald Ford. Ford. The, yeah. power, the Powerball numbers are going to be 4, 7, 92, <laughs> okay. 16, 37, and right. The question right before the break, though, that I was posing, um, all kidding aside, is all this jiggering of these numbers, uh, Lewis, which I gather is for political face-saving and butt-covering. Uh, you Can tell me if I'm wrong. Huh? Oh, go ahead. You sure. tell me if I'm wrong. But all of this is, is building a bubble that is going to cost and hit hard at some point. So yes. It, it's not only that it's building a bubble that is coming and is going to hit hard at some point. It's that it has built a bubble over the last century that that radically uh, uh, sort of changes the way we should think about, about our economy and its performance over the last hundred years. So let me give an example. Uh, we we'd sort of used the example before the break of, of equities in the stock market. So if you look at the S&P 500's performance over the last hundred years, it's returned about 10% annualized. Now, the Fed claims inflation's been about 2 or 3% annualized over that period. And GDP growth, right? The, the growth in the amount of stuff we right. can produce, also right. yeah. about two or three percent annualized over the last hundred years. So let's let's take the the, the high water mark on both cases, three percent. Well, if if the stock market returned ten percent, and those other two figures returned three percent, that would imply that since nineteen twenty, that since nineteen twenty, the allocation of equities in our economy has increased. 81-fold in 100 years. Now, I don't see any way that that math actually checks out because what, what an equity is, what equities are, is really just the ownership of part of that growth. And so... The sum, of the, the sum of the parts is uh, greater than the, uh, you know, the, the whole is greater than some of the parts is the problem here. So we've got an economy that is smaller than the value of the equities representing that economy. Right. And so the, the only way that you can square that circle is if you are hiding all of this inflation growth in asset prices. And so if you actually correct for that- And not accounting for, that, for it. Right. And not accounting for it. And so if you actually correct for that discrepancy, then you figure that inflation actually has to have been about 6 or 7% over the last 100 years. Now, that is a huge difference. Between 2% and 6%. Right. If, if you've taken a 2% inflation hit over the last 100 years, that means you've lost 95% of your wealth over the last 100 years. Now, that's terrible, but it's a pretty slow burn. It takes a while. It takes about 35 years as a half-life on your money, right? But if you are losing 7% annualized from inflation, you would have lost 997 percent of your money over the last hundred years. And that half-life of your wealth is it's not 35 years, 10. it's 10 years. Right. Exactly right. right. Rule of 72, folks, in case you want to know that. That's actually 69 is, yeah, the, is the well, correct well, number. Well, 72 just splits evenly. Yeah. Anyway, the point being is that we have been talking about how this $6 trillion from this last boondoggle slug fest or uh, spend fest through the COVID pandemic 
has not shown up in consumer prices or producer prices because so much of that money went into shifting assets from one person to another. And that process hasn't stopped. The, 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 the cocktail party game now, which we saw in 2008-9 on, on buying houses by borrowing more money to buy more houses because all of your neighbors were buying houses so you could rent them to one another. And then the music stopped and suddenly we had 65,000 houses in Maricopa County alone that didn't have people living in them. And the banks went bust and the home builders went bust. And the time before the cocktail party circuit was all about buying uh, uh, stocks in Silicon Valley. And everybody had to invest in that. And if you didn't invest in that, you were stupid and you were p- not part of the good cocktail party circuit. And then that bubble burst. That 99, was the, 2000, that's 2001, correct. That's somewhere That's correct. There. It was yeah. a 2000, 2001 right, right, bust. Right. And so in this instance, money keeps chasing around assets. They're not buying things to consume. They're buying things to own. And that process has continued to move higher and higher prices on assets and stock pricing and on real estate in particular. How does this stop? Well, we now see interest rates climbing pretty quickly to match the inflation, not as is typical, inflation is outstripping the inflation and in, uh, the interest rate increases for now. What does that mean? What I think we see in this first phase of the the sort of change is that assets are going to be frozen. Why? Well, if I own a house that I now have a two and a half percent mortgage on and it's currently priced at a half a million dollars and the market starts to crater with respect to that pricing, I don't lose the house because I can still pay my mortgage. I've only got a 2% interest rate. The 2009 bust was because interest rates spike and people had borrowed on short term. Lots of people now have 15 and 20 and 30-year mortgages, so they're not going to lose their house. They just can't sell it. Why? Because if they sell that house, even if they got their half a million dollars, they can't now borrow money to buy the next house because it's now at 7%. Or 8% interest. The difference, and by so the way. And so people are frozen in those assets. And the same is going to happen with all the market-priced assets. What's that mean? We're going to have very inefficient markets for a long time, so assets aren't going to move to higher values. The economy is going to shrink because the economy can't grow without moving things to good stuff. Hold it right there. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. You may start seeing some of their ads on TV. I noticed them about a great project they're doing to uh, help endow and teach about American history. It's one of the reasons I love this uh, company as well as the great product Balance of Nature is. keeps me healthy. It's been keeping keeping my energy up and uh, my immunity boosted for going on three years now. Balanceofnature.com, 100% natural, not 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent. Hugh, what was that company that advertised 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent pure? Ivory soap is what we were looking for. This is 100% pure. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code Balance. Got an email for you, gentlemen, from a listener. I just, I just want to say that that's why I don't eat the soap. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> right, because it's not 100% pure. Uh, listener Solomon, Seth, please ask Lewis if the word hedonic, as in adjustments, is derived from Harry Houdini. Seems like it's a big magic trick they're pulling on us after all. 
Uh, it's probably more from the word hedonism, which is what pleasure, Greek for pleasure. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. seeking and pleasure. Fact, but I like yes. the point. Houdini, <laughs> it could have been hedonic. It yeah. also could just be that the hedonists are the one running the show. Yeah, could be. <laughs> could be. But, but, anyway, anyway I, ahead, yes. I, I am sorry to have blathered on endlessly no, about no, no, dry no, economics good. for 45 minutes. But I have gotten more emails on this. It's great. <laughs> well, if, if, there's, if there's one thing that, that I would like people to take away from this, it's that this is another really crystallizing example after the pandemic of how at the mercy of single subject matter experts we are. And frankly, many of those single subject matter experts reveal themselves to be grossly either incompetent or malicious. And and the reason I say that is that the Federal Reserve and, and the Department of Labor has a really profoundly terrible understanding of inflation and how to talk about it. We're reducing everything about inflation to this single number. And in, in mathematics, it's called a scalar, right? Just a percentage that we multiply the entire economy by, we pretend that's inflation. It's called a scalar? A scalar, yes. S-C-A-L-E-R. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, I'm learning a ton. So this is great. What we really need to be doing is we need a much more sophisticated mental model on behalf of our experts. What we really should be thinking about inflation as is something called a vector, Mm -hmm. which is basically a series of different numbers that apply to all sorts of different activities independently. That that allows you to run much more sophisticated analysis and, and to think about it much, much more deeply. But instead, you'll hear the average economist say, oh, the target inflation rate is, is 2%. And that's really a very basic way to think about this problem. As an example, talking about planned economies. Right. So so this is really the, the, the big problem with central planning as an economic model is that it relies on the destruction of information that's found in, at distributed levels in the free market, right? The reason that, that free market capitalism works is that individual local decision makers can optimize based on the information that they have. Meaning billions of decisions are being made independently right. that roll up into an efficient decision for everybody because everyone is having an input into that. Exactly. But a, 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 it's the most natural of crowdsourcing. Right. The, the Federal it, Reserve is, is compacting right. all of this information into one single statistic that is then used to drive virtually every federal program. And this is exactly the same error that we would have seen in the Soviet Union with regards to central planning. It is brainless government at its at its finest. It really is sort of the example of the fact that the government uh, governs best that governs least. Because when bureaucrats get their hands and, and compact information down such that all of the value is lost, we get the kinds of tremendous errors that see us lose 99.7% of our wealth over a century and cut our money in half every 10 years. Based which is on fiat. It's functionally unacceptable. You've got government bureaucrats making the decision on what should be valued to determine what is inflation. And Lewis gave you earlier in the show examples of how they have manipulated even that calculation to reduce the impact on government spending and the appearance of the destruction of value for all of us. Mm-hmm. Now, the U.S. is better off than most societies in that process. Right. The long-run inflation of most currencies, you know, it goes down to zero. Look but at- the long run is what I'm concerned about right. here, which right. is what you're talking about. Yes, indeed. Because there is there there is an end point. There has to be at, yeah. at some point. Well, you know, we, we can keep running down this pathway at our peril. The U.S. can become Greece in terms of its inflation problem because we printed so much money. We are still the reserve currency of the world although that's being challenged. 
uh, by a, a variety of folks who want to undermine the U.S. position in the world. But the reality is that position is also disguising the impact that uh, inflating our currency is having on the world and the U.S. in particular. And this is going to continue to play out badly. And we need policymakers in charge who make better decisions than those who are now using their short-term gain mm. at the expense of the long-term interests of the population of this country and of the world. You know, um, I, I wasn't kidding when I said I got more emails on this. This is one for the books, Lewis. I want to tell the audience, by the way, just no substitute for brains. <laughs> you came in here with no notes, none, zero uh, I, I very like, impressive. I like speaking extemporaneously on your show, Seth. It's well, the best way to have a conversation. As I say, no sen- no substitute for brains, and uh, you've got them. We'll come up with a co- we'll come up we'll come back <laughs> with a closing thought when we come back, and we will be right back. We need to uh, eliminate that one. Frankly, it's it's perfect pitch with Joni Mitchell, but it's just it's it's too high of a pitch. Uh, Hugh Hallman and Lewis Hallman, thank you for spending uh, your hour with us as you do every Tuesday uh, in our third hour. Hugh, do you want to wrap this in a bow? I'll try to. Uh, a University of Chicago student, you studied with Coase and Posner and that group. So yes, I did law and economics, and that was teaching us about how one should make law so that it doesn't interfere with individuals' best opportunity to make good choices for themselves and our society. And Lewis's main points today are about how the federal government continues to manipulate choices so that we are driven like cattle into pens where those in charge want us to be. And it's very difficult for candidates who run for office on concepts of limiting that power and providing it back to those of us who would otherwise exercise it because they're not handing out goodies. And those who hand out goodies get voted in by people who are getting those benefits. And as long as uh, the people who are paying the price to supply those benefits are outnumbered by the people who get the benefits, we'll continue in the direction in which the government is handing out goodies and the people who create the wealth and generate the results that can fund that um, will continue to get punished. And at the end of the day, Atlas will shrug. That is to say that the people who are creating the wealth and supplying the jobs will slow that process. We've seen it in many, many, many societies. Uh, The Roman Republic lasted for 483 years, but eventually broke as a result of the extension of that government power. We are on the verge of having those same kinds of problems uh, exhibited in this country. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to, yes, it may be boring to listen to these economic philosophies and models, but the reality is arm yourself with that knowledge. So when people are presenting the opposite model, You can reject it properly. Nicely done. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you, you all. Until tomorrow, God bless you and class dismissed.